Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's have some fun. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we get to sing praises to you, that you're a God who's not just something that's uh, an idea or an ideal or a politic or something where we feel like if we could just do enough things, you'll be pleased and we won't go to hell. But a God who desires a relationship with us and would rather die than live without us. So God, I just pray as we go through this text, Lord, that you would, even if it's really familiar to us, that you'd inspire a deeper level, a newer level of gratitude and, and just bring freshness again, Lord, to that which might even be familiar. And I just pray, Lord, we'd have so much fun in your word tonight. So Lord, that's up to you. We have come, Lord, to fellowship with you. And Lord, you know our heart is to see something planted and we're just trusting with all of that. And tonight, we just want to be faithful to what you call us to. So Lord, immerse me in your spirit. Come upon me and do what only you can do now and minister in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Like any night, please don't believe me just because I say it. Don't just believe anyone as far as I'm concerned. Search the scriptures and use that to test everything. That includes what I say. Now, on the side that will say getting ready for Mark, I just want to throw a few things out to kind of get us ready. Uh, Of all of the Gospels, there's four obviously written and agreed upon. Mark is the shortest. There's only 3% of the material, to be honest, is actually unique material to the Gospel of Mark. Versus, for instance, the Gospel of John, where like 94% of it's unique. Uh, 56% of it covers the earlier Galilean. Basically, Jesus' ministry breaks up into three sections in, in uh, text. Uh, the first section is the section on... Uh, is, is the time of Jesus' early Galilean ministry. Lots of miracles, lots of outreach, lots of teaching. And then there's this time where Jesus takes this trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem for his execution. And then there's that focus on that last week that Jesus is in Jerusalem. Uh, Mark obviously spends more than half of his time, 56% on that first time, really focusing on Jesus's early Galilean ministry. It's a cool place to start. For instance, John, that from everything from chapter 13 through 21, really focuses on that last week, including his resurrection. So I'll give you an idea in regards to that. Um, of all the Gospels, it has the most miracles per capita. That means you'll find more miracles reading through Mark uh, than you will on any of the other ones. Uh, as a matter of fact, half of the first ten chapters are miracles. It's kind of important to note. And a third of the whole book. Uh, of the Gospels, it has the least teaching and sermons per capita, but it does have, again, the most miracles. Who is Mark? He's not mentioned in any of the Gospels by name. That's kind of important to note. Uh, You won't find him actually until the book of Acts. And the first time you meet him, you meet that his mom has a house where all the disciples are praying in Acts chapter 12. But his first name isn't actually Mark. His first name is John. And we know that because we call him John surnamed Mark. But let's face it, if you said that, you'd have to say, well, the other gospel of John. And that's kind of, I mean, it's confusing enough to have John the Baptist and John the writer of the gospel. Anyway, so Mark makes sense to us. Uh, his mom's house was mentioned as a place where they were praying. He comes from good stock in that sense. Uh, he's a cousin of Barnabas. We know that from Colossians 4. Uh, he was an apprentice on Paul's first missionary trip, but bailed after they went through Cyprus, where his cousin was from. And uh, that becomes a point of contention. As a result of that, Paul doesn't want anything to do with them for quite a while. And what's interesting is, according to 1 Peter 5.13, it appears as if he basically was spiritually, if you will, adopted by Peter. But let's face it. Mark, in essence, the, it got sort of the the challenge of sort of doing this mission where it got too heavy for him, and he just he just he was he went home to mom is basically what he did, and somewhere down the line of that he needs to be restored, 
who better to understand what it means to fall flat on their face and be restored than Peter? As a matter of fact, and we'll talk about that in a minute, ultimately he will be reconciled to Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 11. Paul's last letter makes that clear. But Mark is a guy that knows what it's like to be overwhelmed in the ministry, be a little too young for it, and then go, this is just too much, and he leaves. What we know about where Paul is writing in regards to the, the people that, that Mark is writing to, if you will, they're definitely not Jewish. They're definitely Gentile, and there's four basic reasons. One is the Jewish tr- uh, traditions and customs are explained. If, let's face it, if you're writing to Jewish people, you wouldn't have to explain their customs. The second is a lot of Aramaic words have to be translated, and the, most of the Jews spoke Aramaic, which in essence is like Ebonics. I mean, it's, it's like Hebrew that's been filtered through Babylon is basically the idea of it. You know, it, we might say it's kind of like Essex, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, Arabic. Well, they're, they're all from a Semitic. They're all from a Semitic base. But it's sort of like Hebrew, and then Hebrew just kind of evolves into this when it gets mixed. You know, to be honest, a lot of modern French uh, in some places can be considered that because there was a time when French was very much French, and there becomes a time where there's so many English words making their way into French. I know there's certain places they're like saying we can't add any more English words, or we'll have to stop calling this French. Anyways. The idea of it, though, is, is if you were speaking to people who that, that was their native tongue, you wouldn't have to translate words like boanerges or talithakumi or ipata or abba even, which means dad. Abba means dad. To this day, little kids will follow their dads and they'll go abba, abba, and it means daddy. Uh, it also uses a lot of Latin terms, uses more than any of the other ones. So the people more than likely, he doesn't translate any of those. So we'll assume that the people he's writing to do understand Latin, which would be Roman. And the Old Testament is quoted in what was translated into the Greek called the Septuagint, for what it's worth. Now, keyword in focus. A third of the times in the entire Bible, the word immediately is used. It is a word of immediate action, and you find that. The idea is you'll find something happens immediately this, immediately that, and you'll find as Mark focuses on Jesus being a servant, there's an immediate need. Oh, that's when he's reinstating Simon or when he's calling them initially? Oh, and actually you'll find that in Luke. But you will find the calling of the disciples here, but it's going to be more brought up, very much a longer story in Luke. It will be mentioned in Luke. It will be mentioned in Mark. And one of the reasons is, it's very much believed by a lot of people, to be honest, that Mark was actually interviewing Peter to write this story. In other words, he was taking Peter's account of the story and writing it down. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but I'll, I'll show you a couple of reasons why people believe that. You know. No, John Mark. Peter's Simon Peter. Just to make things even more complicated. Uh, the key focus, by the way, is on the multitude. There's always going to be a multitude. You'll see 25 times in this book focus on a multitude. And the idea is Jesus starts serving and crowds show up as a result of it. That's key. And by the way, the moment you start serving, you'll find people like to show up. Uh, key verses, there's three of them. In all of them, basically the same focus. If anyone desires to be first, he should be servant of all. 
yet letting the Gentiles lord themselves over, but don't let it be so among you. If you want to become great, well, then you should be your servant. They should be your servant. Um, whoever desires to be great should be servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for money. So, Mark 1 starts with a mission launch. That's the idea here, an emergence of John the Baptist. We don't find the birth story of Jesus. We don't find, the therefore, the shepherds coming or the star or the wise men. All of that's going to be found in Matthew and in Luke. None of that's going to be found in Mark. And what we find is the setting is the nation's desperate, feeling completely helpless under the tyranny of the Roman government. The voice of God's been quiet for four centuries. And there's been this crazy event about 30 years ago, and that was this whole birth announcement. But for the rest of the world, it kind of went on unnoticed. And there was a star that moved. Most people didn't seem to notice it. Shepherds showed up. A lot of people didn't seem to notice it. Herod kills an entire city full of children, two years old and under, that are boys. And the rest of the world seems to not take much notice of it. That gives you an idea what life is like then. A man steps onto the stage. In essence, he lives three and a half years in front of us, and he splits history. He's no Cinderella story. What we're going to see is he was foretold for over 3,000 years. It would be promised this guy would show up, and we know him as Jesus. Jesus really, we're God incarnate. Consider this. He'd have to be outside of time and location, and that's what makes Jesus unique from all of the other guys claiming to be this. He's not limited to time. He's not limited to location, and the Bible itself is testimony of that. As a matter of fact, we're going to see, again, the prophecies over three millennia prior. Now, one last thing, and we want to get into the text. And again, I'm just sort of setting us up. A lot of people do believe that this was the story of Mark interviewing, John Mark interviewing Simon Peter. And that goes all the way back, for what it's worth, all the way back to about 65 AD. You know, some people tell you that it's like the Bible was written by a bunch of bored Jewish guys like 300 years later or 500 years later. Well, that would be a real problem because I can give you at least 10 different people here who are quoting the Gospel of Mark and claiming the Gospel of Mark as early as 60 AD. As a matter of fact, there is this scientist, this archaeologist, who they found in Egypt a mummy. Well, that's not out of the ordinary in Egypt. Here, that would be weirder. That happens more in Egypt. And they found on this pharaoh, on this pharaic mask, they started pulling the parts because it wasn't made of solid gold. I don't know if you know that. Most uh, coffins are though they may be covered in gold, they're made of, in essence, something like a paper mache. And when they started pulling up the base material, they pulled up extant manuscripts from Mark's gospel dated back to 80 AD. So they were like, wow, this was clearly copies of the gospel of Mark in the year 80. So when someone says, well, I think it was written in the 300s, well, then, then this was prophecy because it was in the 80 AD. Papias, by the way, over a 1,000 miles away, 1,045 miles away in Hierapolis, quotes Mark in basically 70 AD. Uh, Arrhenius, and again, this is irrelevant, but for the tape, if you will, for the recording, so you know, Arrhenius, uh, 1,900 miles away in Lyons, by the way, quotes and speaks about uh, Mark in basically about 120 AD. Clement of Alexandria, uh, Justin Martyr, Eusebius, Tertullian, uh, origin. All of these guys talk about it. And these are all guys, by the way, who didn't, you know, they basically made it to about 200, a little bit past 200 AD, and that's it. And all of them are saying, this is the Gospel of Mark. And they all also, by the way, they also say, yeah, this guy, that Mark interviewed Peter to get this information. Now, whether that's true or not, what's clear, though, is there was clearly a Gospel of Mark for them to talk about. That's the idea. I mean, let's face it, if we found a newspaper, you know, that was 10 years ago, that was an evening standard or even a daily mail, God forbid. 
And in that was an article about something. It had to exist-ish. I mean, if there was enough people talking about it, you'd kind of go, well, they're pulling up something. And if everyone's, I mean, face it, 10 years from now, no one's really going to know who Princess Diana is unless they really work on it. And you'll be able to say, well, look at all of these, these magazines and look at all of these newspapers and these articles about this person and pictures of this person. And sooner or later, you kind of get the idea, well, this person must have existed because there's an awful lot of evidence of it. That's kind of the idea here. Now, all of that's just in essence setting us up for our text. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The first thing that we read, by the way, is this starts with a guy emerging, a guy named John, who, by the way, we, you know why they call him John the Baptist, right? Because he was baptizing people. Yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, because John the Presbyterian was busy. He was a relative. Yeah, he was a relative of Jesus that had been foretold. Yes, he was his cousin. Now, consider this. What Mark does, by the way, in the first three verses is he tells us that this was not something unexpected. Now, this makes, by the way, this separates Jesus from everyone else. Because it isn't like people are going to show up on the scene and go, oh, by the way, yeah, this has been written of me in our own literature for thousands of years. But Jesus can do that. And what's interesting is this isn't even Jesus showing up. This is the guy showing up before Jesus to tell people he's coming. And the guy that's showing up, what we read is that there's two different texts. He quotes from Malachi, for what's worth, Malachi 3.1, and he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Just to give you an idea, Malachi was written 400 years before Jesus showed up. It's in the Old Testament. Both of these have to be, yes. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant to whom is my delighter and whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God told him this was happening. Now, let's put that into perspective. It says, there's a messenger that's going to show up and tell you that the person you've been looking for is coming. And it's 400 years ago. So, 400 years ago was the 1600s. Can anyone tell me anything that took place in England in the 1600s? Shakespeare. By the way, Shakespeare's first folio made it within the first 20 years after the 1600s. Uh, king James was the king. By the way, he had just replaced Elizabeth at the turn of the century. And there was this guy, this French guy named Guy Fox. Perhaps you've heard of him. Yeah, all of that takes place in the 1600s. Think about how long ago that was. Imagine Shakespeare writes down, oh yeah, a guy's going to show up 400 years from now and he's going to foretell, he's going to get people ready because the king's coming. You'd go, well, that's a really neat thing, Willie. But then he actually tells us where he's going to do it in Isaiah. And Isaiah, by the way, was written 700 years before Jesus showed up. And what he tells us is he's not going to show up in a city He's not going to show up in a little town. He's going to show up in the middle of nowhere. He says, a voice crying, one of, one of a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, if you wanted to kind of get the news out, the last place you probably want to go is like the Aberdeen Highlands, somewhere where sort of all that's there are kind of hippie sheep. Or I guess they're cows, actually. Hippie cows. I mean, it's like, you know, a place where there's like six guys and a whole lot of sheep and cows. Well, the, understand the wilderness was even worse than that. 
Because the wilderness was the dark alley of uh, in the Middle East. In other words, the wilderness was the place where banshees hung out, where people who robbed you hung out. It was the hideout for those people. So nobody likes to go to the wilderness because you kind of know you're going to get rolled there. That makes sense. So imagine 700 years ago. Now, 700 years ago is the 1300s for us. So does anyone know any significant thing that took place in the 1300s? Now, I'm not a history guy, so I had to look this stuff up myself. The plague. Yeah, that was kind of an important issue, by the way. Well, get an idea. While everyone's sort of dropping dead in the 1300s, somebody writes down that a guy's going to go in the middle of nowhere and start screaming where everybody else gets robbed and everyone's going to run to him to listen to him. And who is he? Oh, he's going to be that messenger that's going to tell you that the Lord is coming. Now, understand, this was signed, sealed, and delivered three, four hundred years before and translated into Greek. And so when all of this happens, the book had been clearly already written and had been clearly written hundreds of years beforehand. And you can't just make this stuff up. Now, anybody can stand up. I have an article, as of recent, about a guy that actually, it says that there are seven different people that are claiming to be Jesus right now. I'm sure there's a whole lot more than that, but these are just seven people that made the article. And I mean, one's from, you know, it's interesting. They're all from all kinds of fun places to visit. But, but consider this. The Lord makes clear how he's going to show up again, and he's made really clear. It says, as the lightning flashes in the east and is seen in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You're not going to miss him. He isn't going to show up, and you're going to be like, did he show up? Hey, when lightning flashes on one side of one corner of your sky, everybody underneath it sees it. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're sleeping, you can see it with your eyes closed. You know what I'm saying? And the reason I say that is he goes, look at when anybody that says they're, that they're Jesus before that point, they're not the Jesus you're looking for. And the reason I say that is, is that what makes the Bible unique and what makes Jesus unique, one of the things is how he fulfills all of this scripture. 300 different prophecies about the coming of Jesus, and that's just his first showing up. I mean, to where he would have to be, when he would have to be, to the day, according to Daniel, by the way, when he'd actually have to be dedicated. Pretty crazy as it is. So why is that important to us? That this whole thing starts with a guy that's fulfilling prophecy. Because if it really is God, he's outside of time. And if he's outside of time, well, then he knows everything you have and every issue of yours before you do. As a matter of fact, it actually says that. It says in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows the things you need before you even ask him. There's nothing you're going to go to God with and him go, what? What? Well, that's a shocker. You really can't. I mean, what do you get God for his birthday? He already knows what's in the package. I mean, that's the amazing thing about God. He's outside of time. And because of that, he knew you would be here tonight. And he knew you would be sitting here and having to deal with this stuff. And God knows exactly what he wants for you. And part of it is he sends a messenger first and it says, look at there's some things you're going to need to want to get right because he's coming and he really wants you ready when he does. Ready for what? Well, ready to let him in. That's the point. So his message is, prepare a way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, that's not an unusual message, by the way. We actually have it here. Consider the fact that when a king or a dignitary shows up in a place, they start filling in all the streets to make sure that they're all nice and paved. You don't want that guy kind of having a bouncy ride. In those days, it was worse because not everything was paved. I mean, we're not just talking about little potholes. We're talking about sinkholes, and you don't want to lose your royal. 
So when they say this particular king's coming, you want to make sure that the ground is nice and flat and everything is easy so that he can make it because you want him in your city. You want him to come and visit, so make it as easy as possible for him to get in. Developed in the other three Gospels, John the Baptist will say, look at if it's a valley, fill it. If it's a hill, level it. Because he really needs given the straightest shot. Now, how does that apply to us? It's actually rather simple. The Lord wants in your heart. And what John the Baptist is saying here is, there are th- things you have that are valleys, and there are things you have as hills, and both are obstacles. Now, a valley, every regret that you ever possess and every time you spend your time self-deprecating, going, I hate myself. It's a valley. You're like, Lord, you're going to have to go down there and get that for me. Every hill is a hill of pride. Where we're like, God, you're going to have to get over that to get to me. And he goes, why don't you deal with that so that there's a straight shot into your heart? Well, that's what John the Baptist is saying here. There'll be three key words we'll develop. But look at what it says in verse 4. By the way, to give you an idea in prophecy, Jesus' crucifixion was prophesied 400 years before the Persians invented it and 700 years before the Romans discovered it and thought, thought that it would be a cool thing to do. Verse 4 says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, remission of sins means your sins would be forgiven. That's nice. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. But the word repentance has been so misused, nobody even seems to know what it means anymore. Some will say, turn around. Some will say, do the opposite. But the word for repentance is the word metanoecho, and it literally means change your mind. That's what it means. Meta means to change. Noecho, like noia, means to think, like paranoia. The word simply, when someone tells you to repent, what they're saying is change your mind. You'd say, repent from what or change it how? Well, look at what John the Baptist is saying. You really want to see all of the filth and the guilt that you have off of you? You're going to have to change your mind. About what? Self-righteousness. Living without a creator who created you to be with him. Look at The king is coming and he wants a straight shot into your heart. Straight shot into your heart. So change your mind about this and let him in. Change your mind about how important this is. Because we live life as if somehow today is going to be eternity. But it isn't. And John the Baptist starts, he goes into the middle of nowhere where everyone gets robbed and he just starts shouting. As he starts crying out, there's our shouting, people just start running to him. You know what John the Baptist had that nobody else had in his community? Conviction and commitment. Why do you think people are running and joining like these crazy terrorist groups? They have commitment and conviction. And you ask somebody, well, what do you believe in? Well, I kind of, you kind of believe? That's like being kind of pregnant. Or kind of dead. What if God raised up a guy like this today? What if you were the guy you would raise up? What if you were the one that God would say, okay, this doesn't make any sense, but I want you to go and go full on on this. Would you do it? God's like, look at, I've been preparing this since I, before I created the world, I've been preparing this. You said, look at, you really want all that guilt? Aren't you tired of carrying that around with you? Aren't you tired of carrying all that defeat, all that misery? Well, it's actually rather simple, but you're going to need to change your mind because he's coming and he would really like in your heart. He would really like that. And it says in verse 5, all the land of Judea, those of Jerusalem, went out to him and were baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Here's our second word to develop. It's the word confess. 
Now, if you're raised in a traditional environment, the word confession usually involves a box. You sit on one side, another guy sits on the other side, and you tell him a lot of stuff. But the word confession is literally the word homo logamas. Homo means the same. Logamas, like logic, means word or thinking or reasoning. Actually, confession is so different than we think. I mean, we can go to places and like confessing just means you just have to blurt something out. Well, that's not confessing. That's proclaiming. Let's just be honest. Confessing, according to Scripture, to be honest, is agreeing. Confession really takes two things to agree. So let me say it this way. Let's say Muti has got a Vespa. And Muti gets this cool little Vespa. Just making, making up a name here. And he pops on this thing. And he just goes for it. Hair flying in the wind. And he sees a a sign that tells him that the maximum speed is 40 miles an hour. Muti looks down at his speedometer. It says 40, he's doing 45. Is he breaking the law? Yeah. There's the problem. But he says to himself, as we would, five miles an hour, no one's going to pull me over for five miles an hour. Come on, they've got bigger issues to deal with than this. And he gets, lo and behold, he gets pulled over. The officer says to him, do you realize you were speeding? He's like, speeding? I was only doing 45. He goes, yes, and the limit, you do understand the word limit, limit was 40. He's like, yeah, but it's only five. He's still fighting him, though he's wrong. Now, granted, we could be like, come on. Now, it'd be miser to say, you, you are right. Can I have a little mercy? Mercy, you usually have to admit guilty to ask for mercy. Well, in that, ultimately, finally, after he's in cuffs and he's been pepper sprayed and he's been tased a couple times, uh, and he's laying there kind of lighting up, you know, like, like, you know, like a solar light, somewhere in all of that, he goes, you're right, I'm wrong. That's the moment he confessed because he agreed with the terms. Does that make sense? Now, the law and him are on the same terms. They agree. That's the word confess. And what the people were doing, hear me, is that they were coming out to this crazy guy in the middle of nowhere, risking everything, and they were going, you know, I've been saying this isn't wrong, but it's wrong. I know that my community says this isn't wrong, but God says it's wrong, and I'm agreeing with him now. Though I've been saying maybe kind of shade of gray, but in the end of it all, God saw it black and white and it isn't right and I'm coming clean with this. In other words, people were coming clean. And it is amazing what that does to you when you actually stop trying to fool yourself. And that's what people were doing, which tells us where Israel was right before this. Before John showed up, everyone was kind of in this convoluted state, make up whatever you want. Whatever you think is right is right. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And God's people, like the church... They just fall right into it. But this guy in the middle of the wilderness, he wasn't like that. This guy, by the way, what we're going to see is everything about him was the wilderness. The way he looked, the way he smelled, what he ate, it was all wilderness. This guy was sold out. So, everyone comes there, and they don't just come to the which is a coming out. They're telling everyone, you're right, I'm giving up my old life, and, and I'm confessing now, this is a whole new life that I'm doing now, this is a whole new thing, I've changed my mind about this, and I want to be right. 
I want to be right. And for me to be right, I'm not going to play games on right and wrong. I'm going to take what God says. I'm going to say, I'm going to believe it. And so with that, people were confessing this. And he's like, you know what? I don't know if my mom and dad are going to agree. I don't know if my neighborhood's going to agree. But I'm going to, I'm going to side with God on this. And you guys, I'm just coming clean. John, we read in verse 6, was clothed in camel's hair. Now, in the middle of the wilderness, we don't know what time of year this is, but it can get cool. But for the most part, it's usually 30. We're down now at the Jordan Valley. And that's, by the way, the Jordan Valley is two tectonic plates. That's where earthquakes happen. Down to the Dead Sea, it's the lowest place on earth. And, and this guy's there, and he's, he's kind of not dressed for the occasion. No one wears a fur there. You probably wear that camel's hair. You know, at best, it's leather. He wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Where do you think you get a camel to get camel's hair? The wilderness. Where do you think you got the leather belt? Chances are from the camel. Where do you think you got oh, locusts? There's not a lot of like locusts are us places. But there's a lot of locusts in the wilderness. One thing there's no shortage of in the wilderness, you probably wear that. Any of you ever go camping? My wife does not camp and I'll tell you why. Because one thing you can get an abundance of is bugs. Bugs grow lots in the wilderness. My wife's like, why do you have to pay money to lose all of your comforts? Anyways. Uh, but so there's lots of bugs and there's lots of wild honey. And the whole point of it was, is that, look at everything about John was sold out. John was not living part of the time in a three-piece suit somewhere at the Gherkin and then popping out you know, on weekends to kind of do his little kind of wilderness gig. John was just full on. And you know what? Has anyone in London seen a full on Christian? I mean, somebody that you like, everything about this person revolves like this. They are just fully on this. Well, John was. And because he was, I think we'd go to take a look at him too. Let's be honest. You see a guy like this, wouldn't you want to find out? Let's face it, if there's a guy screaming down the street somewhere, don't you at least try to figure out what in the world's going on with him first? And maybe because you think, well, what if he comes my way? Sometimes it's just a person that's just sold out to madness. But look at, you know what's interesting? We get no other physical description of this guy. We don't know whether he's tall or short, whether he's fat or thin, whether he's lanky or stubby. The only thing we get about him is he's a wilderness. We got one piece of clothing that's clear and obvious. You might still share with him, and that's your belt. Interesting, by the way, it's the one thing that identified Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8, by the way. So you know, which is part of the prophecy about what this guy would come like. And this is John's message. Verse 8. I indeed baptize you with water, but he, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice there's no fire here. Just the Holy Spirit. That's what we get here. The word baptize, and that's our third of our three words we need to make sure we have clear on, just means to immerse, to be swallowed up and saturated. It's the word that's used when you dye a cloth. When you're dyeing a cloth, you take that cloth and you stick it in the water. That's obviously clear with dye. It is not baptized until it is fully immersed and saturated. Then it's baptized. It was not a word that the Bible made up or John the Baptist made up. It wasn't like, well, I think I'm going to be called John the Baptist. Let's invent baptism. I mean, understand this was a word everyone used. It's still, by the way, found in a first century recipe for making pickles. Of course. By the way, the moment it's in the water and saturated, it is baptized. The moment it's pulled out, it's not. That's important. The Titanic, still baptized. 
fair to say to say. No one's pulled it up yet, and who would do it anyways? You know. Yeah. Well, you know, well, you hear about that guy in Turkey? He came back with a few coins, and now he's in a Turkish jail for it. So be careful what you die for. The point in this is, understand this. They knew baptism, but they knew baptism. And remember, that's what they're doing for the moment. They were immersing themselves in water, but then they're coming up and confessing their sin because they're like, I'm immersing myself in this love of God and my desire to be with him. And he goes, so you guys get the idea of immersion. You get the idea of what it's like to be completely under the water. You feel the current, it takes you. Your whole body's covered in it. What word? Loose. Oh, loose means to like untie. So get this. What John is saying is, the one who's coming after me, I mean, if you think you've seen something with me, you've seen nothing yet. Wait till this guy shows up. He goes, the best I can do is cover you in water, and you're going to do that at your own liking. I mean, you'll confess, you'll say, all right, I really want this God, and then bloop, down you go in the water, and you're completely covered in water. Now, some of you had that experience as recent, but you know what it's like, and there's this thrill beforehand and it's excitement but man when you go down in that water there's a moment man where you just kind of lose yourself man it's just like I'm this tiny thing in this gigantic thing and that's one of the reasons I love baptizing in the sea because you, you really are just this tiny thing in this infinitely stronger thing that you're just a blip in and John goes could you imagine what would happen if that happened with God's presence he goes when this guy shows up this one who's actually I'm telling you he's coming this guy, by the way, he, you're going to be swallowed up and saturated in God's presence. Could you imagine? To where you're this tiny little blip in this amazing, beautiful thing and you're caught in the current and everything around you is just this. I mean, we talk about it like it's kind of an event and I get that. I'm totally, I get that. But could you just wrap your eyes on this idea for a moment? What John is saying, that they understood more than we have because we've made it more a tradition. Because what John is saying is, could you imagine... Now, by the way, I love to swim. Maybe you're not one of those people. I'm, I'm definitely an ocean kid. I'm like, give me a beach and I'm a happy guy. As a matter of fact, when we're like, oh, men's conference, where are we going to go? They're like, it's probably going to be someplace by the water. Well, you get it. And I love the idea of just being in water and letting it carry you. And, you know, you're just kind of... And just, I'll hold my breath for minutes just to be underneath there. And I love to snorkel. I'm, just, I'm big on those kind of things. I love to scuba dive. So I just love being absorbed like that. And there's this place where you get to this point where it's just so unbelievably peaceable and peaceful. And it's just like the whole world around you is gone now except this beautiful place where all these cool things God made are in front of you for, on display. You go down to the Red Sea, it's like swimming in an aquarium bright colored fish of all sorts and you're just there in this warm water. It's just epic. And every time I do that, I'm reminded of what John's saying here. Imagine if the love of God, the presence of God, His Holy Spirit, were an ocean, were a sea. And God was like, I'm not going to, this guy that's coming isn't just going to have you float on it. It isn't like you're going to get a cool floaty and you're just going to kind of pop in it. You get the the water rings, and you're just kind of boop, 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 down. He's like, your whole world's going to get so absorbed in this, you're going to get swallowed up in this. Could you imagine how amazing that would be? Do you realize John's promising that here? It's like you know, what you guys are expecting with this king to show up. 
This is what he wants to give you. He wants you to be absorbed and swallowed up and saturated in his presence. At which point I'd be like, make me the Titanic. Swallow me up. Never pull me out of this. It tells us in our last couple of verses to close this up. It came to pass in those days as John was preparing us that Jesus finally shows up on stage. From Nazareth in Galilee, which by the way is a place of roughly a couple hundred people, John the Baptist is in the middle of nowhere screaming and people are running to him and Jesus comes from the middle of nowhere. And he's baptized by John in the, in, the, in the Jordan. Jesus is nothing to repent of except obscurity, which isn't a sin. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Stop. We're one verse away from being done. Why a dove? I mean, imagine the things God could have done. He could have had a choir of angels sit on his shoulders, right? I mean, I mean, ultimately, God's going to tell John before this, because John makes clear of this when he, ma- when he gives that testimony in John one thirty-two. He's like, the one who sent me to baptize told me, this is the guy you're looking for. This is what's going to happen. But God could have said, God could have picked anything there, couldn't he have? He could have said, when you baptize this particular guy, all the angels are going to start singing. The sky is going to turn purple. I mean, a hippo was going to fly through the air. I mean, it's God. He could do whatever he wants. Yeah. Well, and that's what God tells him. And that's the, that's the key, Damien. Hear me on this. God has has been working this all the way back for 3,000 years before this. Because the first mention of a dove was after the flood. Don't miss this. There's a group of eight people in a boat. And that boat is on what? Water. Water, a whole lot of it. And they're sending out a dove because there's a new world out there and they need to find it. Now, they could send other animals out, and they did, but the problem is those things eat dead things, and the problem with something like that is, well, there could be floating dead bodies everywhere. They're not going to come back. There's a buffet full. It's like soup for them. But for a dove, they're going to look for, they're going to look for land. And ultimately, they go and they look, and they send the dove, and the dove comes back with an olive branch, from which, of course, we get this whole peace thing. And then ultimately, they send the dove again, and he doesn't come back. And what that tells us is we've hit land. We have a whole new world. Water has covered the earth, and now there's a whole new world to start. Interesting, because that's exactly what's happening here. We're in this giant body of water, if you will, this great, beautiful body of water, nothing like covering the world, but we're looking at this big, beautiful body of water, and it's like that dove that never came back seems to have come back here. And telling you there's a whole new world now to be experienced, a whole new world to explore. And it starts with this. Now, interesting for what it's worth, the last time that we read about doves in Scripture, do you know it was actually in the Gospels? When Jesus flips tables because someone's selling them, and it's supposed to be a poor person's sacrifice where you gave them to poor people? Interesting. The very thing that brought peace was being sold, not for what it's worth. Now, hear me on this. It wasn't just this dove descending, or this like a dove, as we read here, in bodily form, Luke tells us. But then God the Father testifies from heaven. The Father says, you are my beloved son. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jesus. You are my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased, he's telling everyone else. 
God is speaking to two different groups here. He's speaking first to Jesus. Hey, you're my beloved son. And then he tells everyone else, you all need to know this. I'm really pleased with this guy. Now, Jesus is about to start his ministry. That we'll get to next week. But please don't miss this. If you're going to be a servant of the Lord, man, you've got to know two things. One is, you've got to know that you're a son, that you belong to him, and God loves you. The second is that it's God's job to let other people know that he's pleased with you. Because if you really try to prove to other people that God's pleased with you, you're going to have to fabricate something, and then it's going to look contrived because it is. There's the problem. And God doesn't want that. Now look, at by the time this is done, wouldn't you imagine every person that was there would go, well, man, this is the person we're looking for. Because John had been saying, there's a guy coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. Let's just be honest. This, this guy that's coming, he's everything you're looking for. He will immerse you in God's presence and the very Holy Spirit. And with that, you'll be swallowed up and saturated in God's presence. Man, that's what you're looking for. And I'm like, well, bring it on. I'm ready for Let's do it. Let's do it. And here we are confessing our sin and telling everyone, hey, look, it, I've been lying to myself. I've been saying this isn't wrong, but it is wrong. <clears throat> I'm just coming clean with it now. And where better to come clean than dipping myself in water to show you. And with all of that, then Jesus shows up. What we read, by the way, is that John actually sees Jesus and he says, I should be baptized by you. You see that in the other texts. What's interesting was that John says in John, in the Gospel of John, it says, I didn't even know it was this guy except that the one who told me, the one you see kind of landing like a dove, that's your man. Put those two things together. John did not look at him and know he was the Messiah. Instead, John looked at him and just knew his life was more righteous and said, you know, for all the soul that I am, you're more so. And then he's baptized. He's like, whoa, you're actually the Messiah. My cousin's the button, Messiah. Wow, that's why you were so awesome. Imagine that. But the father's saying, man, you're my son. I love you. And everyone, I'm so pleased with him. Now, has Jesus taught any messages yet? Has he done any miracles yet? Raised the dead yet? Turned water to wine? Broke bread and turned fed 5,000 or 4,000? Raised any dead? He's done nothing like that yet. He's done one thing in that study. He went out and went public with the fact that it's time now when he's available to the Father. Now hear me on this. The Father wasn't pleased with him because of all the things he had done. Because he hadn't done any of those things that we have recorded yet. He was pleased with him because he was his son. You need to know, if you spend your whole life trying to please God with what you do, you're flipping the whole thing around. God's pleased with you because you're his if you've said yes to him. If you said no to him, how could you make him happy? You're aware of the fact we have a, well, some of you, that we have a biological daughter. She just turned 20 on Monday. And we have a daughter we adopted who just started school today. Yay! All right. They're both daughters, and I love them just as much as each other. One clearly looks more like us. She looks more like her mother. She looks like Barbie. And then there's one, she's from China. She doesn't look remotely like her mother. But I love them both just the same. And I delight in them, not because of the way that they do things around the house. Because if that were the case, we'd be in trouble. I delight in them because they're my daughters. I mean, I still giggle and thank God for them. As crazy and wacky as they can be and the funny things they say, in the end of all, nothing delights me more about them than they're mine. Hey, there are other kids out there that could do really cool things. And we've got some people in our fellowship that do really cool things and their kids do really cool things. My wife is unwell for a week. Uh, Fiona's daughter, for instance, our daughter, went and made a whole get well card and gave it to... I mean, I was really blessed by that. 
But she could never delight me with my, like my own kids because she's not my, my kid. But imagine if my kids broke that relationship and spent all of their time instead trying to do stuff to make me happy but not spending any time with me in the result. Do you think that would make me happy? I'd be like, wow, what kind of person do you think I am? So how do we do that with God? When we think, well, if I could just do more stuff, God's going to be pleased with me. Really? Why don't we start with this? If you've said yes to the gift of Jesus, then you've been adopted by him. And if you're adopted by him, he's pleased with you. And let that bring about action because he is pleased with you. Then you do it out of the fact he loves you, not trying to win it. And that's so, so different. Now, listen, as we go to prayer, I need to go and take it to this, and we need to pray. The whole issue here is that there's a God who adopts. God has one begotten son. By the way, only begotten we read in scripture, monogenes, it only means the same one from his gene pool. In other words, I have two children. One of them has my genes. The other one doesn't have my genes. Although, to be honest with her, she, she acts an awful lot like me sometimes and it makes me laugh. But she doesn't look like me. She doesn't like my DNA isn't in her. They're both my kids. Jesus is the only one of God's gene pool. They have the same DNA. But God's into adopting. And the great part about it is there's only three ways you can become a part of a family. You can marry into it, you can be born into it, or you can be adopted into it. And you realize all three of those God offers you because he's going to cover all the bases to make sure. Now, how does that happen? It's simple. There's a price to be paid. Our sin, remember, that's what John said. There's a sin issue. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah makes that clear. Our sin separates us from God because God's perfect and holy. And we're going to try to say, well, I'm good enough. Good enough for what? Let's face it, only, you have to, we only have to break one law to be guilty before a court. You say, yeah, but I haven't done a lot of other things. Well, I haven't murdered or raped or anything like that. I've just stolen a lot or whatever. But in the end of it all, we're still guilty. And if we're guilty, it's to be punished. Now, we, if we're the guilty people, let's face it, we'd rather not be punished. But we kind of, there's something that inside of us that goes, well, if they don't punish me, is there a lot of other crazy people out there they are not punishing that should get locked up? But in the end of it all, there's only one way God could do both. And that was to punish it on a person who is, is completely innocent. And the only person that qualifies is himself. So God sends his only son, his only begotten son, to pay the price on the cross for you and me so that he could take your sins and my sins and punish them. And the crazy part is Jesus volunteered. And as he volunteered, the, the punishment happened at the cross. And all of that was taken care of. The bill was paid. Just like Scripture promised, he died. And then, just like Scripture promised, on the third day, he rose again. In the same way that people went into the water and came back up, Jesus did that with the grave. And he says, will you, the bill's been paid, will you let me then, will you accept this gift I'm offering you? And there's going to be two people in the world. There are going to be those that say, why in the world would I want to pay a bill you've already paid? Why would I want to be punished when you've already been punished for it? Of course I say yes. And then there are going to be those that are going to be like, well, I'll take my chances. But don't blame God. He did all the work. And as we go to prayer, I want to just give you a chance to say yes to this Jesus. And if you say yes to this Jesus, man, that's it. God says, well, welcome to the family. 
And all of that guilt and that filth and the shame and regret, he rips it off of you for good. Praise God for that. That's the choice you got to make. You know, on the other side, if you have said yes to him, maybe the good thing to start with here is just getting back to the fact that there's a father who's pleased with you. Now, I don't know if your earthly father was like that or not, but your heavenly father is. He's perfect. And he's pleased with you if you're, because you're his. Let that govern what you do. You don't do stuff, let me say it this way, you do it out of that love, not to get it. Because you already have. So would you pray with me, please? God, I just want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for what you've done in it. I want to thank you for how you've prepared us. And God, I just pray for every person here at the sound of my voice, God, that you would just show them that you love them and you want them. And you paid this bill, but you're asking for their permission. You give us the dignity of choice. And for all of the other religions where we could just join something that's a political movement or an idealism or whatever, only one really deals with the fact that, that there is a, a sin issue that needs to be dealt with, a guilt that needs to be handed, that we need to take into account and needs to be properly punished. And only you properly punished it with your son, Jesus. And I pray for every person who has said yes to you, Lord, but lost focus on the fact that you delight in us because you delight in us, because we're yours, because we're your kids. Bring us back to that place where we could hear our Father just giggle because we're his. And regardless of whatever our earthly father has or hasn't done, show us what it's like to have a heavenly Father who delights in us and how radical of a thought that is that that's the state we get to live in. And that we would re be reminded that, Jesus, your desire is to completely saturate us in your presence and your power so that nothing else will matter in comparison. Please, Lord, tonight, do that work in us. Please. within the sound of this voice, hey, regardless of where you started out this evening, there's still a choice to be made. The Bible says that if you're willing to confess with your mouth, remember that's that agreeing that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. God will actually rip all of that guilt and all of the weight that's been on your shoulders and that regret and all that failure, he's going to rip it right off of you and replace it with peace and love and joy. And if that's you, it's as simple as an agreeing. So pray this. If that's, that's it, you just pray this with me right now. I say, God, yeah, I'll confess with you. I agree with you. I'm guilty in of myself. I'm not perfect. And you as a righteous judge, you, you punish all guilt. But you so love me, you sent your son to die on the cross so that all of that could be punished, so that I didn't have to be punished for it. And when he died there, my bill was paid. He was buried, and just like your scripture promised, with all of the other prophecies that he rose again, to show me that there's a whole new life. When I say <clears throat> when I say yes to you, you have a whole new life for me to explore. Just like that dove back in the days of Noah, there's a whole new world to explore. And I say yes. Well, then have me. Make me new then. And put my trust in you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.